From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today, we'll get an inside look at Flight for Life and learn how their operation ensures they're always on standby to save a life. That's where the aircraft really kind of shines, is where we can come in, get that patient, get them moving to that higher level care center and, and provide that, that patient with, with a, a better outcome. We'll explore the vision for restoring the corridor, one of Milwaukee's industrial hotspots. Plus, learn about the making of the 1950 film Summerstock, Judy Garland's last movie musical with MGM. They put this script together, which Judy did not love, Gene Kelly certainly did not love, but they looked at it as something to get Judy back on her feet and back in front of the cameras. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. We'll start with an inside look at how Flight for Life keeps the community safe. People can be critically injured in a split second, whether it's a car accident, a gunshot wound, or any other significant trauma. The job of Flight for Life is to get you somewhere that can save you, and fast. It's a medical transport unit that takes patients by helicopter to hospital emergency rooms, including Freightert, Milwaukee's level one trauma care center. Flight for Life is on call 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. So there's a lot of preparation and coordination involved. WUWM's Mayan Silver learns about the program from Scott Rinzel, its market development manager. There's two very distinct types of calls, right? There's trauma calls, there's scene calls, where we're actually responding, you know, working with, with uh, local fire departments, actually responding kind of in the field. And then there's also inter-facility calls, right, where we're going to, um, to, to hospitals and actually, and actually taking patients from that controlled setting to the, the freighters, the St. Luke's, the larger type of facilities in the city. Also, you know, Madison, UW, there, there are a whole bunch of different hospitals that we, that we actually go to. When you're picking someone up from a scene, where on earth does the helicopter stop? So that's actually a, a really big part of what I do is being the kind of the, the account manager for Flight for Life is working with the local fire departments. We conduct what we call landing zone trainings. We try and get to each one of our departments that we work with every two years. That's the goal. And what we actually do is we'll actually go on site to these departments. We have a we have a, a presentation that myself or another one of my my colleagues will conduct. Um, it goes over, you know, the you know, really the the kind of nuts to bolts of what Flight for Life is, how we do it, who we are and what they can expect when they're when they're calling a Flight for Life aircraft to that scene. So, you know, things like, you know, the, the, the dimensions that the landing zone has to be proper radio communications, um, you know, how that how that that whole process works. That's really what we train and that's really what we, we work with. So when we are in, you know, in, in the midst of, of, a, of a chaotic emergent situation, right, that training kind of kicks in and everyone knows kind of what to expect and, and then what to happen so we can provide a safe outcome, not only for our, our crew, but for that patient as well. But let's say that you had to, there was, there was a car accident on 35th and National, who knows, or, or Farwell and North or anywhere in the city, where would the helicopter stop? Would you find the closest hospital nearby and then how would you get to the people? So we actually find that the, the majority of, of the accidents in the, in the scene calls that we're going to are, are kind of outside the city, right? Because, you know, and because really the where, where, flight, where flight becomes effective is when, you know, 
the or really effective, excuse me, is when um, it's the ambulance ride to the facility is going to be prohibitive for that patient, right? So if let's say we're out, in, let's say we're out in, I'll, I'll just use use Burlington as an example, right? For the Burlington Fire Department to take that patient all the way down to Freighter or, or private ambulance to take that that patient to to Freighter Hospital, the length of time that that transport is going to take is going to cause, has the potential to cause potentially negative outcomes for that patient. So that's where the aircraft really kind of shines is where we can come in, get that patient, get them moving to that higher level care center, and, and provide that that patient with with a, a better outcome. In the example that, that that you described, you know where we're in the city. The length of time that it takes for us to kind of stand up and get to that scene, get the patient loaded, you know, have a proper landing zone set up, it really just, you know, in, in those scenarios, it really makes more sense sometimes for that for the fire department or the or the, the, the transporting unit just to take that patient directly to the hospital because it's going to be a much faster turn time, if you will. I see. And are you doing a lot of rural calls? What geographic area do you focus on? We are southeast Wisconsin, so I mean, down to the the Illinois border, um, up to you know Sheboygan area, um, out west. We 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 travel, you know, we we go, you know, nor normal customers are you know Beaver Dam, Watertown, Fort Atkinson, kind of to the west, then north as far as Sheboygan. We actually are are very lucky. We we work with with some of the specialty teams for freighter. And we actually do some longer distance. We actually do some some transports with them. So some some calls, like with for example, the ECMO team will, will take us up to um, like Marinette, up to north, northern Michigan, things like that. So there are some some you know one-offs, but our primary service area is southeast Wisconsin. So I'm actually someone whose life was saved by Flight for Life, or helped be saved by Flight for Life uh, in 2004. I was awakened in the middle of the night with an aortic dissection. It's when there's a tear in your aorta and I had like paralysis from the waist down. I was at St. Mary's in Ozaki and then Flight for Life took me to Freighter Hospital. So how does it feel to be a service, like part of a service that's helping save lives like that? And do you hear from a lot of people that have used the service? Oh, I mean, you that's in. First of all, I'm I'm very glad that we were able to you know have have an impact and 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 help you. That's 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 exactly why I think the the, the majority of the people at this organization that's kind of their that's kind of their why, if you will, right? We walk kind of a fine line, right? We don't you know we understand that that we're involved in some very traumatic you know um, scenarios and and we're involved in, in very dark times in these people's lives. So you know if if patients do you know reach out and 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 express an interest to, to come and you know attempt to meet their to meet the 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 uh, crew who was involved in their call or come see the aircraft or even just come tour the base um, we, we absolutely try and accommodate that um, there's you know there's there's one young, young lady specifically that I can that I can think of immediately um, she she reached out um, she, she's in her mid-20s you know at a, 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 a car accident uh, was and ended up being flown uh, had some had some 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 lasting effects but you know it's still you know she's she's you know incredibly positive woman she's she's really just a ball a ball of positive energy and she asked to kind of come reach out and um, two of the crew members who were um, actually involved involved in, in in her um in her call were were retired um, and so one lives up in door county the other works for the faa 
Um, and uh, so they actually, we actually were able to, to, to reach out to them and they were willing to come back. You know, you, I mean, they don't, they, they no longer work for the organization, but it's still, it meant so much to them. They were, they came back. We had a, you know, kind of a, a, a nice little reception for her where she was able to kind of see the aircraft. And it was, it was really a positive, it was really a great thing for her and her family. And I think, you know, to your point, it just really, it just really kind of reaffirms why we do what we do and kind of what our purpose is. I think, I mean, and again, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a crew member. I'm not, I'm not, you know, one of the, one of the people flying in the air craft, but um, I, I think I, I, I feel pretty confident speaking for those folks when, when I say that. So, I mean, clearly most people, you mentioned it's a very dark time for people when they're on Flight for Life, and it's a dark time for their families, but who are the people behind the scenes, you know, flying the helicopters, providing the medical care? All, can you can you unpack a little bit of, of who those people are and how they're trained and Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so a, a flight for life crew consists of our, our pilot, our medic and our, our, I'm sorry, our flight, our flight paramedic and our flight nurse. Um, that's, that's a, that's kind of our, our typical setup. Um, it, we, we can operate in a, in a flight paramedic, flight paramedic model or a flight nurse, flight nurse model. It just kind of changes some of the, of the different calls that, you know, that, that we can do. Um, but that's your typical flight crew. Um, and then at each base, so our, our Hartford and our Burlington base, there are two mechanics assigned to each aircraft. So they are responsible for, you know, they're responsible for the aircraft. We have a fantastic maintenance crew. They are, they are incredible. Chris Eels are, uh, are, are one of our mechanics, one national uh, mechanic of the, of the year. Um, he is, he is a, he's a great asset. We are, we are extremely fortunate to have him and the rest of our mechanic staff. Um, and then kind of the, more behind the scenes, we do have some auxiliary staff like myself, um, you know, we, we have some um, administrative assistants, comm center directors, things like that, um, you know, medical directors, our executive director. And then we also actually have, we're, we're very fortunate to have a local comm center uh, here in Waukesha. So we have, we have uh, communication specialists who are uh, on site 24 seven and they are, they are locally dispatching our, our aircraft. So they are kind of here on site. Those are kind of the, uh, the behind the scenes folks, if you will, that are not actively engaged with the aircraft. So this is apparent to anyone who watched MASH when they were growing up. Sure. Um, basically, just that in the Korean and Vietnam Wars, people finally started to realize how valuable helicopters could be for medical evacuation, but it mm -hmm. was for military medical evacuation. The first flight for life for civilians in the U.S. started in 1972 in Colorado. Do you know how it got to Wisconsin? Yeah, so I, I don't know. I don't know the exact origin. I do know that there's again. I, I'm I'm sure I'm butchering this story, so I, I apologize. It's been passed down, you know, through you know from person to person. But I know that we did reach out and ask if we could utilize their namesake because we we were starting the program. I, our, our first flight was completed in 1984, um, so we did ask them to to use that namesake. They said yes, um, and then and then. After us, I think they, they kind of shut down use of that. So we are the only two, you know, flight flight for life programs, if you will, um, that I'm aware You're of. You in Colorado? Correct. And then and then obviously there are other there are, are other providers all, all over the country, just but just with that specific namesake, it's it's, it's us and them. So the other providers pretty much in every state, then right or every area. Oh yes, yeah. There, there are aircraft. There are you know for-profit, not-for-profit aircraft all over the country, numerous, you know, everywhere. Is Flight for Life nonprofit? Absolutely, yes. Yeah, we we are a not 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 for profit organization. Yeah, absolutely. Gotcha. Okay, Scott Rinzel of Flight for Life. Thanks for joining me on Lake Effect. I appreciate you very much. Thank you. 
Scott Rinzel is the Market Development Manager for Flight for Life. He spoke with WUWM's Mayan Silver. The 30th Street Industrial Corridor, an over 800-acre slice of Milwaukee's north side, has served as a major node of Milwaukee's manufacturing reputation for over 100 years. But with businesses trickling away in recent decades and old factories sitting empty in the neighborhood, developers and community leaders are looking for a new blueprint. Rich Ravito is a contributing writer for Milwaukee Magazine. He wrote about the area's recent redevelopment and shares some insights with Lake Effect Sam Woods. Rich begins by explaining the history of the corridor and how it has contributed to Milwaukee's reputation for manufacturing and good-paying jobs. The 30th Street Industrial Corridor at one time was the, the hotbed of manufacturing in, in Milwaukee with employees coming from the surrounding neighborhoods and you had uh, a lot of the major employers in Milwaukee, a lot of the major industrial firms located there. A.O. Smith, Tower Automotive, Briggs & Stratton, Badger Meter, uh, all had locations there at one time and all have either uh, moved away from the neighborhood or shut down operations altogether, which has left large parcels of, of land vacant, uh, some buildings that have been vacant for many, many years, now some industrial properties. Um, but at one time, uh, this, you know, this was a key, key uh, area for, for manufacturing in, in Milwaukee and in southeastern Wisconsin in general. Yeah, and a, a key flashpoint to the neighborhood's transformation is the closing of Masterlock. And Masterlock's a huge, huge company, huge brand name. Uh, people across the world uh, um, can recognize it. Similar to the way when we think of tissues, we think of Kleenex, or when we think of soda, we think of Coke. You know, when you when you think of picking up a padlock at the store, uh, you probably the image that comes to mind is a Masterlock. Um, but the famous lock manufacturer is set to wind down operations this month, and and completely shut down and leave the area by March. And, you know, this is just one business, but what does the closing of Masterlock uh, mean for this area? This is a this is a big blow to the neighborhood. Uh, Masterlock is the last prominent uh, manufacturer located in the heart of the corridor. Uh, Molson Coors and Harley-Davidson are on the on the very, very southern edge of, of the corridor, but uh, Masterlock is, in, is, in, is right in the heart of, of the corridor, and this has been a, a plant that has employed thousands upon thousands of people over the years uh, and was held up uh, in the last uh, couple decades as an example of a uh, manufacturer that brought, that initially had sent jobs overseas or to Mexico and had brought back uh, a lot of these jobs. Um, President Obama made a visit to the plant a number of years ago held the plan up as a great example of, of reshoring, of bringing these jobs back to, to American soil. Um, and he mentioned Master Lock in his State of the Union address one year. 400 employees there now in one of Milwaukee's poorest neighborhoods, if not the poorest neighborhood in Milwaukee, the Amani neighborhood. Not only are you losing the 400 jobs, but now you're going to have a, a, a very large, another very large manufacturing industrial property that will be sitting vacant and right in the heart of this neighborhood. Yeah, and, and typically vacant lots are, are not seen as, as great for a neighborhood or and certainly not great for uh, city tax revenue. But they do provide an opportunity for a, a clean slate for new businesses and uses of land in the area. So where do we go from here? 
Well, I think because so much of the area is zoned of, of the 800 acres, 880 acres, I think uh, 500 of the acres in, in the 30th Street Industrial Corridor are zoned for manufacturing and industrial use. I think that manufacturing will still remain a core or key part of what goes on in the in the corridor. But I, the leaders in the in the in the corridor are looking at a more all-encompassing, holistic redevelopment opportunity here. We're focusing not only on the business aspects in the corridor, but on the people that live there as well. Making this a better place to live, place that would attract businesses and residents alike. The challenge they they've been trying to get uh, industry to move into this into this uh, neighborhood for a number of years now, and it's it's come with fits and starts. Uh, and there's still a lot of vacant property that has not been redeveloped or has not attracted new manufacturers or manufacturers from other parts of the area. So the challenges remain there. But uh, part of what they're looking at is things like a, a, a bike trail. They're looking at a, a 6.2 mile bike trail that would go run along the rail line there. It, again, this is focusing on improving uh, the, the, the lives, giving some quality of life uh, issue here that would be addressed and would allow people to, to access other parts of the, the corridor for shopping and for just conducting business and conducting their daily lives. Also, one of the major things that uh, is being looked at right now too is uh, potentially locating a branch campus of a historically black college or university uh, in in right in the core of the corridor this this would be big news I think you know the residents the the vast majority of the residents that live in the corridor are black and this is uh, this this would be again an effort to make the quality of life better there and to train them for the jobs that are available in the corridor or may become available in the corridor as they attract more and more businesses that branch campus would work in concert with uh, the employers that are in the corridor to develop a curriculum that would be specific for the job needs of, of the neighborhood. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up about having a, a satellite campus for an HBCU, a historically black college or university uh, in the area, because that would certainly be something new and, and exciting for a city that um, does not have a HBCU campus um, in the area. And I know in the article you quote someone as saying, you know, they're in the process of this and they weren't ready to uh, name a certain HBCU that they were working with. But what do you know about where we stand on the progress and, and timeline of possibly getting this satellite campus in the area? Well, I think this is something that that's real and has an opportunity to, to become to come to fruition. Uh, from what the uh, leaders in the corridor are telling me, the, there, there have been ongoing discussions with multiple historically black colleges and universities. Uh, they are not comfortable at this moment identifying who they've been speaking with, but uh, said this is this is real. The discussions are real. The, this this opportunity is is uh, uh, has a lot of potential behind it. Whether or not it's something in the next you know year or so, I'm not sure about that. But uh, I don't think that it would be looking extremely long term. I think this is this is something more maybe medium term uh, that they'd be looking at some, somewhere down the down the road here. Getting back to what you were saying earlier about, um, you know, not only just trying to attract businesses, but investing in bike trails, places to shop, a possible um, HBCU campus. Is it fair to say that the strategy um, for redeveloping the 30th Street Industrial Corridor is not just to recreate it as a home for industry and industry alone, um, but a place that attracts both businesses and people? 
Very fair to say. Again, this is I think this is a holistic approach. The city is in on this too. Um, I think maybe the laser focus on just having this be a center for industry over the last few years has maybe stymied some efforts there in some ways. Uh, I think you have to make the area as a whole more attractive as a place to live through your recreation and 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 work. Uh, I think it's I think the holistic effort here is is a change from what the the focus in the corridor has been uh, in the past. And I, I did speak with someone too at the Dominican Center, um, which works in conjunction with the uh, Amani Neighborhood Association that really would like to see a shift away from uh, the, the focus on heavy industry. Uh, they think there's more of an opportunity for jobs in water and agriculture and uh, you know, they they got a the Dominican Center opened a hydroponics lab and a few years back they've had some success with that and they they think that's where the opportunities may be that there may be more success going that route than focusing straight on the on heavy industry. Speaking of this mixed use development strategy, or at least just not a laser focus on on industry, you mentioned in the article that the development strategy within the 30th Street Industrial Corridor mimics that of uh, the Menominee Valley, where um, I don't know if there's too many people living in the Menominee Valley, but, you know, there's bike trails, there's green spaces, opportunities for recreation, and it's not just a home for businesses. Is this coincidental, or have leaders deliberately drawn influence from the Menominee Valley? I don't know if there's been direct discussions between the folks in the corridor and in the Menominee Valley, but I know for a fact that that uh, the leaders in the corridor are looking at the Menominee Valley as an example. Everybody looks at the Menominee Valley as an example. It's it's a wonderful success story that's drawn nationwide attention of uh, of an area that was blighted, full of uh, contaminated, abandoned industrial properties, uh, and it's 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 completely transformed into this. Uh, combo area, multi-use area. You've got the Harley-Davidson Museum on one end, you've got American Family Field on the other, you've got Potawatomi Casino Hotel uh, kind of in the middle, the Marquette Athletic Fields. And then amongst all of that are some very, very nice uh, new, newer uh, industrial properties or, or heavily redeveloped industrial properties. There's, there's a few blighted Places that are still there, there, you know, that's not, it's not 100% uh, transformed. But this process has been uh, pretty amazing to watch over the years with the, with Manami Valley. Yeah, at, at the very least, it's it's good to see people and 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 leaders, uh, you know, not just pack it in and say, you know, well, we had a good run here in this area, but it's over, and and try to find a new path for the next several decades. Um, so, Rich, uh, thank you for uh, being here with me and um, kind of walking me through some of the recent developments in the 30th Street Industrial Corridor. And for those listening that want to learn more, um, go check out Rich's article in uh, Milwaukee Magazine. Thanks for having me, Sam. Pleasure to be here. Rich Revito is a contributing writer for Milwaukee Magazine. He spoke to Lake Effect Sam Woods. Later in the show, we'll bring back our series Family Recipes, where we share a beloved recipe that holds special meaning to a community member. But first, we'll learn about the making of the movie musical Summerstock and why one local author thinks it's worth bringing back into the spotlight. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Take me to the
You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Go get your troubles, come on, get happy. You better chase all your cares away. That is Judy Garland singing Get Happy. And while this song is incredibly famous in the Garland songbook, the movie it came from has not endured in the spotlight. Get Happy is the closing number of the 1950 MGM musical movie Summerstock, starring Judy Garland and Gene Kelly. Despite coming from the production company known for churning out musicals, its classic musical moments and lead actors, the film isn't listed alongside other classic musicals Garland and Kelly were known for. A new book called Come On, Get Happy, The Making of Summerstock studies the motion picture from start to finish and after its release, revealing the studio system that was at work in Hollywood's golden era. David Fantel is the co-author of Come On, Get Happy, and he joins me now to share more. David, welcome to Lake Effect. It's good to have you here. It's good to be back, Audrey. It's been a few years. It has. <laughs> so, and speaking of years, your book has been 40 years in the making. <laughs> so to start, why Summerstock and what about it has kept you so invested all these years? Well, the love of the Hollywood musical goes back even more than 40 years for me and my co-writer, Tom Johnson. So when we were teenagers, and like many people saw That's Entertainment in 1974, we were 15 years old, we got hooked on musicals from that point on and really have never looked back. Um, when you say 40 years in the making, I mean, rolling up the sleeves and the hard work for this book was a good four years, the past four years, but you're right. We were fortunate as college journalists back at the University of Minnesota to have what you might call tenacity, pluck, chutzpah, nerve, whatever, <laughs> to actually um, go to Los Angeles as college journalists. And we're fortunate in 1978, at the age of 18, to have green-lit meetings with Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly. Amazing. Yeah. And, you know, when you meet Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly, and you, they're so universally revered, it opened the door to dozens or actually hundreds of more Golden Age stars that um, we were fortunate enough to meet. And during those meetings, it included two visits with Gene Kelly, a visit with Harry Warren, the three-time Academy Award composer, who was the principal songwriter of Summerstock, Eddie Bracken, who has a really fun supporting role as the sort of neurotic fiancé of the Judy Garland character, as well as Charles Walters, sort of the unheralded great director of these MGM musicals who directed Summerstock. Now, our interviews and our meetings 40-plus years ago weren't strictly pointed at talking about Summerstock because we didn't know at that time that 40-some years later we'd actually write a book. But we did ask questions about it. Unfortunately, we retained tapes and notes and other things and were able to include those primary research um, interviews into our book. What do you think it is about Summerstock that's made it been overlooked in the history of all the, the musical canons that we think about, especially in film? Like even the hardcore musical fans maybe aren't as familiar with it or they kind of dismiss it. I think the plot probably is what people dismiss the most because the plot arguably or admittedly, I could say, is not really advancing the art of the film musical. It was looked at as a little bit of a throwback to the Judy Garland, Mickey Rooney, hey, let's put a show on in the barn kind of things that they were doing about 10 years ago. But at this point in Judy's career, this was 1949 when they started production, 
you know, Judy's career was a little bit rocky. I mean, mm-hmm. and again, she had a marriage that was all but over with director Vincent Minnelli. She had a growing addiction to prescription medications. She had a three-year-old toddler to care for, Liza Minnelli. So a lot of things were working against Judy at the time. And so they put this script together, which Judy did not love. Gene Kelly certainly did not love. But they looked at it as something to get Judy back on her feet and back in front of the cameras. Yeah, so let's explain the plot briefly here. (laughs) There's a barn dance. Yeah, right. (laughs) Stuff happens in a barn. (laughs) So, you know, Judy plays a strong, independent woman, and I think that is overlooked a bit when you think about Summerstock. But essentially, she plays a Connecticut farm owner who loses her hired hands, and she's faced with bringing in her crops all by herself or with little to no help other than a tractor, which seems to have an ongoing role in this plot of the film. And all of a sudden, her ambitious younger sister, Abigail, played by Gloria DeHaven, decides to bring a troupe of aspiring actors to their barn to stage a barnyard musical that was really directed by the Gene Kelly character who plays Joe Ross. So it is a variation on let's put a show on in the barn musical. And the last several minutes of this film is devoted to what we call a show within a movie. Mm-hmm. And that is all of the different musical scenes. That number are, after number. Number after number. <laughs> and of course, it ends on an incredible high note with the iconic Judy Garland number, Get Happy. Right. So people are probably more familiar with the closing song, Get Happy, than they are the movie that it came from. So let's talk about some of the factors that brought this movie to be. MGM was pretty much considered the studio for musical movies. So what factors were playing within this studio that led up and drove this film's production, despite the leads maybe not liking the script and and other things that kind of complicated its production? Well, Summerstock was just on the slate of planned productions. I mean, MGM and all the major studios at that time were still factories. That's what they were doing. They were self-contained factories that were churning out 30 to 50 feature films each. And as early as December 1948, the Hollywood Trades announced that Summerstock would be a future production at MGM Studios and produced by Joe Pasternak. So Summerstock was just another production in the factory system at MGM. It went before the cameras in late 1949. Gene and Judy weren't hip on the, really too thrilled about the script itself, but they all managed to overcome that and really churn out a really fun, enjoyable entertainment. And when we don't talk about it in the same breath as some of the other musicals we just mentioned, I will make the case, and I hope the book does, and if you watch the film, it makes the case, that for 109 minutes, There is some incredibly entertaining musical numbers if you look beyond the script. Now, I'm not going to mention the Phil Silver's Gene Kelly Heavenly Music number as one of them. But Gene Kelly's personal favorite tap dance solo, which he does with a squeaky floorboard and an old newspaper, is his personal favorite tap dance that he did in any of his movies. We have Judy Garland's Get Happy, which is on the short list of anyone's favorite Judy Garland film numbers. You have the Portland Fancy, which is probably, of the three films that Kelly and Garland made together, is the best dance number that those two do together. It's a tap solo in the barn. It's sort of like an old-style challenge dance. Like We use the analogy of Annie Get Your Gun. Anything you can do, I can do better. Kelly does a move. 
Judy can meet that move and does it. There's an overlooked ballad, sort of of the style, you could say, of Over the Rainbow, and that's called Friendly Star, and it's a very lovely number. It never really had legs beyond Summerstock, probably because it was upstaged by Get Happy. And there's the Dig for Your Dinner, which is sort of like a weird Southern revivalist kind of thing. Again, Phil Silver's a little over the top with his shtick. But Gene Kelly does an amazing tap number. And Kelly works so beautifully with tap dancing in really confined spaces. And I think the Dig for Your Dinner number is a perfect example of that. So Gene Kelly and Judy Garland, they're, of course, the star power behind this. Um, they've worked together over the over their careers. Can you share a bit about what Judy Garland and Gene Kelly's careers were at at this point? You mentioned Judy's troubles with uh, prescription. What, what do we want to call Medications, them? Medication. Yeah, right. They called them energy pills, yeah, right? right. Um, but they also had a great working relationship together, despite whatever the project was they had. Like when they were together, it was something special. Well, Gene and Judy started, well, Gene's first film was 1942. It was for me and my gal, and it co-starred, or it starred, Judy Garland. And Judy Garland, after Wizard of Oz in 39, was sort of money in the bank at MGM throughout the 1940s. But Gene loved Judy and always felt that he was indebted to her because Gene came from the stage, pal Joey in particular, and he was used to projecting to the third balcony. Judy helped him in 1942 for that film sort of tone it down and how to really act in front of the camera. They didn't work together again until 1948. They made an ambitious film that um, is sort of a cult classic today called The Pirate. And then they reteamed again. They started in 49 for the 1950 release of Summerstock. Gene Kelly's career was on the ascension. He was an A-lister by this time. Immediately after Summerstock wrapped, he went into another landmark musical, An American in Paris, which won a Best Picture Academy Award. So Gene was on the ascension, and Judy was having more and more issues. While Gene wasn't thrilled with the plot of Summerstock, he knew and the studio knew that they needed to surround Judy Garland with people that were friends of hers and people that she trusted. So that being said, they brought in Charles Walters, Chuck Walters, who had directed Judy in Easter Parade in 1948, Gene Kelly, Eddie Bracken, Gloria DeHaven, Phil Silvers. What did they do? They acted as this giant security blanket around Judy. They protected Judy and helped bring her over the finish line to complete the Summerstock production. So this book also addresses some key myths. You heard about the making of this film that you dove a little deeper into with your research. What were those ones that you wanted to dispel to kind of bring this movie up in you know public opinion i think most people think that the long production and the problems that this production was beset with was solely the fault of judy garland her absences her growing problems and that is entirely not true did she come late yes did she miss some days of production certainly but there were other factors by december of 1949 they realized they had only five songs they realized that the five songs were not going to carry them over the finish line. What does that mean? That means they had to write, compose, orchestrate, record, and film new numbers. That extended the length of the film, production time. The other myth is that people think that the last thing filmed was Judy Garland's number, Get Happy. Some even think that it was a film number she had um, filmed for a previous film, and it was cut, and they inserted it and edited it into Summerstock. All myths. 
Get Happy was shot only a couple weeks after Judy wrapped her initial production. They brought her back. She personally selected Get Happy. Chuck Walters beautifully choreographed and filmed it, and it was done. But the other thing is, it was not the last number shot for the film. The last number that was actually shot for the film was Gene Kelly's squeaky board newspaper solo dance. So, if anything, we want to make it clear that Judy Garland was not the sole reason the film took six months to complete. Yeah. With MGM right now, currently, it's no longer an independent studio. Long ago, lost its status as a powerhouse studio as the film business has changed, you know, since that heyday of musical production. But what do you want readers to learn and appreciate about summer stock over 70 years later? Well, that it still has some of the best numbers, musical, and it's one of the last great tap dance musicals. Yeah, with Singing in the Rain, there were still some tap dance numbers to come and musicals to come, but we think it's one of the last great tap dance musicals. And again, in 109 minutes, I think you're going to see more show-stopping numbers than many of the more well-known musicals of that era. And you're exactly right. The studio system by 1950 was changing dramatically, and we really write about that. Louis B. Mayer, the the head of the benevolent, I say that in air quotes, head of the studio since 1924, since its inception, was almost on the way out. Dory Sherry, a younger, more progressive filmmaker, was on the way in. He was the head of production. TV was encroaching. We had the Hollywood blacklist that was taking place at the time. We had the studios, the monopoly that the studios had with their distribution of films and owning theaters being broken up by the federal government. So the whole grasp that the studio system had for the previous 20 years was starting to crumble. And we talk about the circumstances in which Summerstock was made during 49 and 1950. There's a star for everyone brightly shining in the sky. David Fantel is the co-author of Come On, Get Happy, The Making of Summerstock. He, along with his co-writer Tom Johnson, will be doing two presentations this Friday and Sunday as a part of the Southeast Wisconsin Festival of Books and Boswell Book Company. You can find more information at wuwm.com. Coming up next, we'll share a recipe for chicken steamed and sake and why the dish is so special to one Milwaukeean. Keep listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. This is Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. With the changing seasons often comes a change in the menu. Fall is a great time to enjoy soups, roasts, and sweets. Following a hiatus during the COVID-19 pandemic, contributor Lucian Young is resuming his family recipe series, where he shares a beloved recipe that a local resident remembers from childhood. Today, we'll meet Hiroko Kawai, who shares her mother's recipe for chicken steamed in sake. When I was a little child, my mom used to cook this dish whenever she was too busy to make a whole, you know, fancy dinner, but wanted to have one fancy, nice dinner that doesn't take too much time. So what makes this dish so fancy? Because it uses sake, and then once it's done, 
it looks good, you know, and then it tastes good, right? So, was your mom the primary cook in the house, and did she enjoy cooking? So she was the primary cook in the house. She had four children, so she was very busy all the time. But I don't know whether she enjoyed cooking, but she had a lot of good recipes. Where did she get her recipes from? Was it all family recipes? She must have learned from her mom, my grandma.、Uh, but after she married into a, a Kauai family in Kyoto, Kyoto has a distinct style of cooking and cuisine. So I think she had to learn Kyoto style of dishes. Also, before she got married, I think she might have gone to cooking classes. So that's when she collected some of the good、uh, recipes because I remember seeing old books that she had from cooking school or a cooking I don't know cooking classes because handwritten or printed out or something like this that she had lot of them. Now was that standard for? Young women of your mother's generation to go to cooking classes and、I、learn those things. So, I think so. So I don't know whether she went all of the standard classes like、uh, tea ceremony classes or a flower arrangement and a cooking and then、uh, putting on kimono and stuff like that. Those are like a standard cultural classes to go to.、Uh, I don't know whether she went all of them, but I think she went to the cooking classes. Maybe she was good at、uh, flower arrangements, so she must have gone there, and then maybe tea ceremony. Did she pressure you to take any of these courses? Did you have a different mindset? Oh, thank goodness, she never pressured me to do anything. So that's that's kudos to her.、Uh, but a good friend of mine and I took tea ceremony lessons. My friend was really really good. A student of tea ceremony, and I was kind of a delinquent. I always complained, you know, why do we have to sit so long on the knees, you know, or why can't we have freedom to eat however you want? There are so many procedures and steps before you get to eat the sweet and then drink tea. So many rules. So I was kind of、uh, <laughs> rebellious about that. So、uh, she always tells me,、uh, you are a kind of a bad student of、uh, tea ceremony. But yeah. I went. That was not because of her pressure.、Uh, I, I wanted to do something traditional with good friend of mine. So, how do you think your generation is different from your mother's generation? I think、um, my generation, it's it's okay to work after college, after high school. You know, it's it's okay to work, even after you get married, but. It was just the beginning in my generation. In in the next generation, a lot of women work. But during my generation, growing up, you know, some people stopped working after they got married or after they had children and stuff like that. So, but compared to my mother's generation, definitely it wasn't assumed that you stay at home completely. You know, to take care of the family matters only, right? So. Parents' generation is right after the war, or slightly、um, during the war, right? So ending the World War Two, right? So their value is really saving and keeping the wrapping paper,、uh, making sure that you reuse all the stuff, right? <laughs> the tissue paper and the paper towel. Yeah, they reuse, they reuse. You know, two times. You know, so very different attitude. Very、um, frugal. And、uh, careful about spending and stuff. 
my generation maybe not so much <laughs> so so when you were on your first on your own away from home and you had to start cooking for yourself mm-hmm. what kinds of things were you cooking oh, that was really challenging i came to the u.s as a student right so the cafeteria food really wasn't so good Every day was mashed potato and really overcooked green beans. So um, I had to get a rice cooker in my dorm room. Of course, I didn't have enough money to buy a sashimi or you know fresh fish. So I had to go to avocado. Avocado <laughs> sliced and then a soy sauce with wasabi and over rice. And it tastes like tuna. So I learned to do it. Um, after, after I uh, stopped being a student, finally, and then started working, still needed to remember how my mother did all of my favorite dishes. I had to just go back in my memory and then just, how did she do it? How did she do this kind of a thing? And do you remember the first time that you tried making this dish? Yes. It's easy. So it comes out all right. Yeah. I just didn't know what was the measurement. So I wanted to ask her again very recently. <laughs> okay, well then let's let's, let's jump it. into the okay. kitchen. Yeah. All right. So I notice here that you are using chicken thighs. Do you prefer chicken thighs to chicken breast? Yes, chicken thighs have good fat and it's more flavorful, I think. You know, of course chicken breast is, you know, better for diet, but I prefer chicken thighs because it's it's got lots of flavor and is that what your mom used yeah my mom's recipe has young tender chicken and how do you get young tender chicken from a grocery store i don't know her recipe is written in the 60s maybe 50s 1950s that is very old so it says young tender chicken as if you are going to go out to the backyard and get the young chicken And this is ginger root. Okay, so ginger root seems to be one of the main uh, main seasonings. Yes, it is. Uh, Ginger root and sake, yeah? Can you use powdered ginger? I don't think so. It may not have enough flavor to season the chicken while cooking. Green onions go on this, too. So we've got ginger, chicken thighs, green onions. Yep. How would you characterize Japanese cooking? Um, How do I characterize Japanese cooking? It's, I don't know. It's just good. (laughs) And compared to Chinese cooking, I I think it's less flavorful compared to Korean cooking. Definitely less flavorful because Koreans use good spices, good chili and all that, right? Japanese don't usually use chili. Um, and it's not really spicy, right? So I don't know how to characterize it. It's just good. So how has your how have your tastes changed over the years? Or how have your tastes changed in, in the kind of food that you like to eat? Younger days, I did not appreciate how much I liked Japanese food or how much I rely on eating rice and all the things. And then in the middle of the time, when I came to the U.S., I liked the burger, I liked the french fries, a lot of, um, oh, lasagna and stuff like that, right? And pizza was just a staple for student life. So I had that phase. And then now uh, I like 
to go back to Japanese kind of a cuisine, even if it's not elaborate, just like this chicken dish or、um, a rice and stirred fried vegetables and the fish, like the salmon, you know, it's cooked in the oven. So it's mostly Japanese style of something. Okay, so we've had the big pieces of ginger and green onion. Now, what are we doing? So now we are ready for sake. So I got this in、um, an Asian grocery store. So it happens to be Chinese、uh, sake, but no worries. Any kind of cooking sake, don't spend <laughs> your money on the fancy sake. But as long as it's a cooking sake, it's like that. Immerse、uh, the chicken in there. And is there a strong alcohol flavor with the sake? No, once it's cooked, it just gives you a good、uh, flavor after it's been cooked. So that's it. And it, that's it. Just that's it. ginger, green onion, and sake. A little bit of salt, and then sake. Okay, and so we、oh, put this in the oven. The key thing is you put the lid on. <laughs> so the Pyrex is perfect. You know,、uh, if you have a lid. Then just put the lid on and then put it in the oven, like 350 degrees for one hour or so. Okay, 350 degrees for one hour in a covered casserole dish. Yes, that's it. So, do you marinate the、um, chicken ahead of time before you put it in the oven? No, I don't.、Uh, it, it may be even better if you do that, but the recipe doesn't call for it. Just immerse、uh, chicken in the sake, cooking sake, <laughs> and put it in the oven. Or in in the olden days, may have used a, a steaming device, right? But this it's just simple enough to put it in the oven. Okay, and then we've just cooked it for an hour. Yeah, hour or maybe seventy minutes. You know, hour and ten minutes or so. And、um, it's been chilled. That's the best way to eat it, and with the hot rice on the side or with the green beans being cooked, that goes really well with、uh, this dish. Is that how your mother would serve it? Yes, she would do that.、Um, green beans always come with it. So, okay,、All、let's、right. let's taste. Okay. So, what do you think of when you're tasting this now? <laughs> um, just. Yeah, my family, you know, sitting around the table, that sort of thing. So it's always all together. It's just having fun conversations, laughing about something,、uh, and just enjoying it. it you, you almost don't look at the dish, you know. You just have a conversation, but it's there that this dish is there. That was Hiroko Kawai sharing her family recipe of chicken steamed in sake with Lake Effect contributor Lucian Young. You can find our past family recipes at wuwm.com. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, simply download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. NPR Scott Detro recently paid a visit to WUWM and sat down with WUWM's Mayan Silver. They talked about what it's like covering politics. You'll hear that conversation tomorrow on Lake Effect, plus comedian Paula Poundstone. That's tomorrow at noon on Lake Effect, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.